1: a podcast where I chat with inspiring IT professionals, consultants and experts from around the world. To find out more about the podcast, visit ITCareerEnergizer.com. And don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes automatically downloaded to your device. And now let's chat with today's featured guest, David J. Anderson. David is the chairman of Lean Kanban Inc., a management training events and publishing business, which licences its brands and franchises its events and training classes globally. David began his career as a games developer in the early 1980s and has worked at companies including IBM, Sprint, Motorola and Microsoft. He is also the author of several books, including the best-selling Kanban, Successful Evolutionary Change for Your Technology Business. So David, can I ask you to expand on that introduction and tell us a little bit more about yourself?
0: Um, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me, Phil. I really appreciate the opportunity, and uh, uh, hello to everyone who might be listening. Well, nowadays, um, I, I own a company, and um, I am a father, I have two teenage daughters, and I'm currently speaking to you from Cascais uh, in Portugal, which is close to Lisbon. Uh, on the beach, and I'm I'm living here for a few weeks at this time of year with my uh, girlfriend. There's a lot in there, you know, so I, I started as a software developer, I started as a games developer, and it wasn't until a bit later that I went to university and learned how to be a real software engineer. We might talk about that a little bit. I worked in a few startup companies. Um, I was penniless at the end of that. Then I worked at IBM as a contractor. And I started um, a, a journey in, you know, in big corporations. And ultimately, uh, I ran the software engineering group for a company called Corbis which is, or was a privately owned company that Bill Gates owns so I've met Bill Gates I've met Richard Branson and I've met Prince Charles um, in my life and the, the, if I had to list the three most famous people I've bumped into somehow or another it's those three
1: Okay, is that the sort of people you usually bump into?
0: I wouldn't say so no <laughs> <laughs> but uh but they're all interesting characters, you know. So can you
1: share a unique career tip that the IT career energizer audience need to know and probably
0: don't? Oh, well it's hard to say what people don't know. But uh the yeah, I, I love the, the, the famous Yogi Bearer quote, When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Never look back and never regret, you know make the best of the choices that you make in life and uh regardless of what field you pursue it's always possible to excel to become world class at whatever you do even if it's something very basic i meet people who just love their job there was a a guy who's the doorman at the um at the exhibition center in downtown Seattle and he wears this beautiful uh, uh, uniform long coat and top hat and he has the gloves you know the whole deal and this guy just loves his job you know it's inspiring to see him the way that he greets people and holds the door open for them and so on so even in incredibly mundane jobs people can be uh, world class they can be exceptional so Uh, you you know don't regret right and to feel fulfilled in what you're doing uh, Daniel Pink taught us you need mastery autonomy and purpose and it's worth thinking a little bit about that you know like find a place that you can work where you can obtain those things mastery autonomy and purpose and you know from time to time in your career don't be afraid to fire your boss that the saying is that people join companies, they join the vision, the purpose, whatever the company has, but they leave their boss. And if you have a boss that doesn't give you that opportunity to have mastery, autonomy, and purpose, quit. Go uh, find somewhere else to work. I And I want to expand a little bit about that. Pursue mastery, right? So to master something, you need to do it for a while. And particularly for young people listening to this, it's not always obvious. I remember being, you know, that 15, 16-year-old kid and thinking uh, I could do anything and I can rule the world. And it wasn't until considerably later that I looked back and thought, you know, that 10, 15 years experience really helped. So... The first thing is to forget the 10,000 hours rule that Malcolm Gladwell popularized, right? There's no magic number. But as a general principle, five to 10 years of doing something is probably the order of magnitude you need to be thinking. And to master something, you also need to teach it. Right? So you need to find the opportunity to teach, like onboarding new hires at your company or volunteering with kids, that if you don't know how to teach something you're not a master and you can't learn how to teach without actually having someone to teach. The In fact the definition of master is that it's someone who has an apprentice under tutelage. So to master something you have to be a teacher. And, and Learn to value experience. Right? I think geeks and and you know, God knows, I've been one, been there, done it. Um, geeks tend to value raw intelligence. They think that they can think their way out of every problem. Right? It's the logical inference thinking, what Daniel Kahneman called System Two. However, limbic brain pattern matching type thinking, what Kahneman called System One, is really invaluable. Technologies change, languages, platforms, APIs. But most of the basic problems in IT, they, they just don't change. Uh, thinking back over 35 years now, a little longer, 37 years, they, they, they just don't change. The, 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 the syntax changes, but the problem doesn't change. Uh, and to develop a feeling, to be able to feel your way to the right solution, you have to have experience and so many of the right answers are counterintuitive so I I think the message is to have patience you have to value experience and the next one's autonomy right you know how do you how do you get to to have autonomy well the key is you have to be trusted and to be trustworthy you have to exhibit competence to exhibit competence you need skills knowledge experience experience you need to produce results. You need to deliver working product. Trusted people and trusted teams are people and teams that ship, that deliver stuff, that put stuff in production regularly and often. Uh, and then finally, we all need a purpose. We, we need an answer to, you know, why are we here? Why do we come to work? What are we doing here? And you need to work somewhere that has mature leadership, that understands why are we here, what are we doing, and is communicating that. And don't be afraid to ask that. Don't be afraid to ask why. Someone asks you, you know, build this piece of software. Why? Who asked for it? Why are they asking? What do they care about? And if someone can't tell you the answer to that, you need a different place to work. So ultimately, if you're going to feel fulfilled, if you're going to have that autonomy, mastery, and purpose... You need to be prepared to fire your boss now and again. Can
1: you tell us, maybe, about your worst IT career moment and what you learned from that experience?
0: Oh, yeah, I saw this on your list of questions and it's really a a hard one. Worst career moment. Uh, I I think all careers are riddled with failures. And uh, certainly I've been fired a couple of times. You know, politics happen in big companies. And from time to time, you may find yourself in that position. You you might find that you get fired. And it could be that you didn't really do anything wrong, that you did the right thing for the customer or some other stakeholder, or just because you acted in a professional and ethically correct manner. You know, just recently, the, the guy who wrote the code for the uh, the, the the VW engine management system that, uh, that tricked the emissions testing, he got sent to jail for four years. So uh, imagine that he had pushed back and he'd said, you know what, this is unethical, you're asking me to do something unethical. Well, quite possibly he would have been fired. And that may have been the right thing for his career and and you know it's unfortunate that, that someone in the profession had to go to jail to teach everyone else that individually we all have some responsibility so you, you need to think about what you value and would you rather find a new job and have your principles, your ethics, your self esteem intact or would you shut your mouth, keep your head down, keep your job res- and, and respect yourself a little bit less? And, and these are tough questions as you get older, right? That you, You'll never get any judgment from me because real life happens. We all have periods in our life when we have sick parents or sick children or sick spouses uh, or other real life challenges to deal with. And there are times when we have to compromise. We have to say, you know what? I don't like it, I don't like what I've been asked to do, but I need to keep my head down and keep paying the bills because there's some greater concern in my life. But if you don't have those things right now and you're being asked to pursue something that's that's unethical, maybe you need to push back on it. If you get fired, it's not your fault. There was one other time I got fired where basically I ran into a narcissistic boss and, it, you know, if you research this, you'll find that the, the advice on narcissistic bosses is pretty much get out. If you realize you're working for a narcissist, there's nothing you can do about it. It's, um, you're set up for failure. Because if you start to do a good job, the narcissist feels threatened by that. Yeah. And then they start working to undermine you. And it's, it's just a, a horrible situation. And it becomes a question of, do you quit first before the narcissist fires you? So don't get too upset if you get uh, fired. Uh, However, I did actually come up with what I think is probably my worst career moment. And it actually dates back to 1990. And at the time I was running a small uh, games development house while I was studying at university, actually, simultaneously. And I had a contract to develop a game for electronic arts, very well-known, respected, uh, games publishing Indeed, yes. uh, house. And, uh, the the end product it just wasn't a good game that we had pushed the limits of the machine capability too far and the consequence was that at, at some stages of the game the, the 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 refresh rate for the frames was only 4 per second and it was too it was too jerky it was averaging 8 or 9 frames a second, and really, uh, even in those days, a decent game needed to be about 12 frames a second. And the game design lacked it lacked a truly unique selling point. It lacked originality, and um, the, the consequence is they looked at the finished product and said, you know what, we're not going to publish it. And it hurt me financially, I had real skin in the game. And uh, it caused me to quit the games industry. Uh, I recognized that as a development house, we were all in. We had one game in development at a time. While the publishers like EA, they they had a risk-hedged portfolio. They had 20 to 40 games in development at any one time. And they could afford to cut half of them and not actually release them to production at all. So uh, it was the very early life lesson that it just wasn't possible to manage risk without considerable scale in the business. And I decided to um, pursue other avenues. I I graduated university and I, I went in a different direction.
1: Okay. Can you maybe take us to your career highlight or greatest success and tell us about that?
0: This is another good question that I, I, I saw on your list and I thought, wow, tough one. <laughs> um, because really I've been blessed with many great opportunities in my career. Going back as early as 1984, uh, um, I wrote the first game that was published by a games house called uh, US Gold. And it was launched at the PCW Trade Fair in London, which at the time was the, the, the biggest tech trade show in Europe. Uh, and maybe the second biggest one in the world at the time. And I did the the, the Sinclair ZX Spectrum version of a Commodore 64 game called Beachhead. And at the time, many experts had said it just couldn't be done on, on the Spectrum. And several, I learned later, several people had turned it down and said, you know, I can't touch this, I can't do it. And yet, we stole the show with it. It was the talk of the industry, and I got to pick my projects after that. So so I had some very early uh, career success. In 84, I was 17 years old. In the early 1990s, I won three innovation awards from the Scottish Government, and there's pictures of me with government ministers receiving awards that appeared in the newspapers. In 1999, I was part of the team that delivered uh, a piece of software called PowerLender to United Overseas Bank in Singapore. Quite possibly the most sophisticated bank lending system that's ever been written and deployed in production. And we developed it using uh, a process. You know, it was a big project, big team, $20 million, something like that. And uh, that process became known as feature driven development. And it was my entry into what later became known as, as the Agile software development movement. Right. So I, I was in that from the beginning. I was, I was part of that. Uh, we called them lightweight methods as early as 1997. And years later, 2011, I was at the 10-year anniversary of the Agile Manifesto at the Snowbird Resort in Utah at the invitation of Alistair Coburn. And my first book, Agile Management for Software Engineering, 2003, pretty significant and influential. Didn't sell that many copies, but the people who liked it were very important people. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. Uh, then, of course, there was the Kanban thing. Uh, nowadays, we call it the alternative path to agility. It's the thing that I'm probably best known for now in my career. And the book, which came out in 2010, sold about 80,000 copies in English. Ten other language translations. Huge bestseller. And then this year, uh, I got an award. Uh, an academic paper I co-authored in 2007 was given a most influential paper ten-year retrospective award at the ICSSP conference in Paris. That's an academic conference, and the 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 people in the audience listening to my if you like acceptance speech were some of the the, the good and great in academic software engineering from around the world and it, it was really quite stunning but all of that doesn't answer your question right it career highlight i think the 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 highlight for me is two lectures that i've given one at usc that's the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And the other one was at my alma mater, the University of Strathclyde. And uh, with the Strathclyde one, I was invited to talk to the fourth-year undergraduate, so the people who are about to graduate with their, their bachelor's degrees, and, uh, and give them career advice. So in a one-hour lecture, the, the theme that I had was Pursue risk and uncertainty. Choose the path with the highest chance of failure. And the second piece of advice was develop a diverse social network. Nurture social connections from many spheres and walks of life. You know, Don't just assume that you can solve everything you need to do in your life uh, with your geek friends who went to university with you. And I think that that advice is still very sound today. It's robust, long lived advice. And if you're listening to this today, pursue risk and uncertainty. If someone says this is a hard thing to do, well, that also means it's probably very hard to automate it or replace it with some sort of artificial intelligence. Uh, So that's probably a good place to put your career. And as you're moving step to step, look for where the the risk and uncertainty is because the easy problems are going to be solved with outsourcing automation or AI. And in in order to be able to solve those high risk, high uncertainty things you might be pursuing, you need to know people who know stuff you don't know. So a really diverse social network uh, makes a huge difference. Uh, and then there was the USC lecture, which I think is one of the great stories of my life. So Barry, uh, Barry Bohm is the the head of the software, in, software and systems engineering group at USC. And he was a fan of my first book. The publisher sent him a free copy and he happened to look at it and ended up reading it. And that caused him to email me one day. I came into my office at Motorola, and there's an email from Barry Bohm, and I didn't know him at the time. And he said, hey, I want you to come and join my research review at USC. And I did that in 2004 and 2009, and, and uh, I've become friends with Barry. So one time I was in L.A. and uh, for another business reason, and I arranged to have some lunch with him at the campus on USC. So I go to Barry's office uh, before the lunch and he shows me a copy of his new book, Software Engineering, Barry W. Bohm's Lifetime Contributions to Software Development, Management and Research. How is that? That's 10 years ago now. And Barry is still full of energy, still at conferences, he's still making a difference in our industry. And it's now 10 years since the publisher published his lifetime contribution, uh, you know, almanac. Anyway, so we go off to lunch and uh, we're chatting and halfway through lunch he says, "Uh, I have a lecture for my MSc students at 2. Would you want to give it for me? So we finish lunch and we walk over to the lecture hall and, and it, it's full of like 150 students all, you know, sitting in this amphitheater. And Barry walks down to the front and he says, um, uh, so uh, th- th- this was the topic for today's lecture and he puts up a PowerPoint slide with a URL on it and he said, you can download the lecture notes from from this location. And meanwhile, we're going to have a guest lecture from David Anderson. So I went to the front and I talked for an hour on lean software development and some related management ideas. And and, uh, I I don't think I can top that as a career highlight to be invited on the spur of the moment by Barry Boehm to to lecture his MSc students.
1: That must have been an interesting experience.
0: Um, it, it was intimidating, yes. uh, you know, the fact yeah. I could do it off the cuff was, was, was fine, but I walked in, I don't know how old I was at the time, maybe about 40 and I walked down to the front and I turned and I looked at the audience and, and they're all like 23 years old yep. and it whole, the it was packed full of these young kids and they, they were so youthful and they were so full of enthusiasm and energy. And and I thought, I can't let these people down. I need to say something to them that's meaningful and useful. But I, I have to be incredibly grateful to Barry. It, it shows a tremendous respect. And uh, it's, it's really hard to put in words um, the value of that from a career perspective. A guy who started hacking, computer games in the 80s, and then went and did a series degree in software engineering and uh, read about people like Barry in books to get to the point where he trusted me um, with his paying as a private university that they all have to pay master's degree students.
1: Yep. We'll move on now. So what excites you about the future of the IT industry and careers in IT?
0: wow you see i i think the most profound change in my career has been the recognition that it work is a team sport that it's a social activity i think that's the core of the agile movement the the recognition that sociology is important that there had been recognition that psychology was important um jerry weinberg had had called that out as early as 1971. So I think we understood that programmers are human, but now we understand that they're they're not individual humans, they're groups of humans. Sociology has become uh, really important, Uh, and hence what was true about leadership and organization of humans as early as Egyptian times is largely still true today. Technologies change, they come and go. People don't really change. The way they behave socially uh, doesn't change very much. And sociology is the big thing, The, 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 the human aspect to the profession. That's what excites me the most.
1: Okay, we're going to move into the reveal round now. Are you ready for this? Sure, let's go for it. Okay, so what first attracted you to a career in IT? Oh,
0: 1980. I think I, I I was a you know, a young kid with some ambition and I was hanging out with a few other young kids with ambition and we we were entrepreneurial. We were looking at, you know, what can we do with our lives? What kind of business can we start? And we thought electronics might be interesting, but it was just at the point it was the digital revolution was happening. And personal computers were beginning to emerge, and in 1981, the Sinclair ZX81 computer appeared. And at that time I was 14 years old, and I and three of my friends we all bought those computers and learned how to program them. And by Christmas 1981, we were selling software. We were running our own little software company while we were attending what Americans would call middle school. Yes.
1: Yeah. What is the best career advice you've ever received?
0: Oh, so it's so many of these questions are like what's the one thing? Yes. And I had to think hard about this because there's really two things um but if I have to narrow it down to one, it's perseverance. That you just have to stick at it. If you believe in something, stick at it, keep doing it. If you want to learn to be good at something, persevere, keep trying, keep working on it. Um, don't let people put you off. And the, the, the close second on this one was to ask yourself, what are people afraid of? You know, if you're in the workplace and you're running into resistance for your ideas, or you can't get people motivated, they're conservative and they don't want to change what are people afraid of but that on that finished second to perseverance if you were to begin
1: your it career again right now what would you do
0: that's such an interesting question because if you'd asked if you were going to start a new business as a teenager what would you do then i think that i'd have a whole different answer to that but uh, from an IT career perspective, that this is going to sound terribly boring and sort of, oh, here's an old man trying to lecture you know young people. But uh, uh, it's not so long ago that I was one of those people. So uh, I actually think from an IT career perspective, acting with some humility, enlisting in a really good university, one that has a reputation for being good at computer science or software engineering or electronics or some related uh, thing or perhaps is uh, exceptional in research and things like uh, artificial intelligence or control systems or something. Um, that, 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 That stands for a lot, that all universities are not born equal in terms of the quality of the education that you're going to get. They're born equal in the sense that if you're applying for a visa to go live in a foreign country, then as long as it's a baccalaureate, nobody cares. But the quality of the education that you'll get will vary dramatically. And while doing that, learn the fundamentals. Go to a university that still finds the time to teach fundamentals because, people who understand the fundamentals, even just very basic Boolean algebra and binary type logic, they make really great coders. And really great coders write code without bugs, code that can be reused, code that can, can be maintained easily. And they're constantly learning their craft and improving. And a really good university will instill that 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 discipline that you need to be a really great coder down the road so i I think value that fundamentals are robust from a career perspective robust knowledge of a currently fashionable language or an api that that's fragile the fundamentals are, are are i know it's a boring answer
1: what career objectives are you focusing on right now
0: well the the honest truth is, I'm 50 years old now, and um, I, I'm at a period in my life where I'm trying to focus more on my health, my family, everything that I didn't pay enough attention to when I was younger. Uh, and you know, health includes mental health. You know, you work too hard; it drives you a bit crazy. So, But from a purely career perspective, right now I'm focused on making a lot of my unpublished work accessible to a wide audience, so I'm writing again, and right now I have about 10 days of cl- of, of training class curriculum, which is unpublished material, you know, if you come to the class, you, you, I teach it, other people teach it with me, you, you get the PowerPoint, you get the handouts, whatever but it's not easily accessible any other way. Uh, So to put it in perspective, I have a new book coming out at the end of this month called Fit for Purpose, How Modern Businesses Find, Satisfy and Keep Customers. And that book is based on only 90 minutes of training class material. And it turned into a 90,000 word manuscript. Right. So, I've got four or five books buried in the, in the remaining unpublished class material, at least. Uh, so actually I'm writing uh, the, the next thing uh, to come out will be the Kanban maturity model. And the, the fit for purpose book is the first of a trilogy of three. We have two more planned. We being uh, myself and Alexei Zegloff. And uh, I'm working on that. That's uh, next year. i um, taking some time to do a bit of bike riding, a bit of skiing, a bit of hiking in the mountains, and writing. And occasionally I I give some speeches. Meanwhile, I've handed the leadership of my business over to Todd Little, who is the new CEO of Lean Kanban Incorporated.
1: What's the number one non-technical skill that has helped you in your career so far?
0: Communication. And specifically public speaking, when I was in uh, what we British people call secondary school, for Americans that's middle or high school, um, I, I was in the debate society, and learning to, for example, argue a position that you don't personally hold or believe in, and having to argue that in front of often a hostile audience of kids from another school, that, that's an amazing personal development experience. So learning public speaking from our young age has been uh, incredibly useful. And in general communication, developing skills as a writer, being articulate, knowing how to tell stories, knowing how to be motivational and at times persuasive has really been uh, invaluable. That, that is the number one non-technical skill.
1: Can you share a parting piece of career advice with the IT Career and a jazz audience?
0: No. Oh, I think I hit on some really good ones already, you know, that pursue risk and uncertainty, develop a, a broad social network. People ask me, well, how do I do that? And I tell them to watch a movie called Charlie Wilson's War. Charlie Wilson was a, a member of the House of... Uh, representatives uh, from Texas and he orchestrated the uh, the, the, covert, the, the CIA's covert ops uh, against the uh, Soviet Union in Afghanistan and what enabled him to do that was an incredibly diverse social network and if you watch the movie you'll understand.
1: And finally what's the best way we can find out more about you and potentially connect with you?
0: All right, well, so just a final mention that I have a new book coming out at the end of this month, um, Fit for Purpose, How Modern Businesses Find, Satisfy and Keep Customers, co-authored with my friend Alexei Zegloff. Um, The the, the book launch will be in, in Paris on November the 28th. And it's a business book, but IT people will find it immensely helpful when they're developing things like specifications or making process improvements. It it helps people understand Uh, a few fundamental questions. How do you know whether a change uh, to a product specification or to a delivery process, how do you know if that change is actually an improvement? Uh, What purpose did your customer have when they came to you with a request for a product or a service that you deliver? And have you fulfilled that purpose? And are they satisfied? And uh, the book answers those questions for you, hopefully uh, in an enjoyable and very readable manner. And meanwhile, you can always find me on LinkedIn Um, My LinkedIn is Agile Management, so linkedin.com slash n slash Agile Management. And uh, my company website is www.leancanban.com.
1: David, thank you so much for joining me on the IT Career Energizer podcast today. It's been great chatting with
0: you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Phil.
1: My thanks to David for being such a great guest. You can find full show notes, including links mentioned during the show, at itcareerenergizer.com e41. In next week's episode, I'll be talking with Rex Black, a leader in the field of software testing and a prolific author of books and articles. To get next week's and future episodes automatically downloaded and available to play, simply subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher or whichever streaming service you're using to listen in. As you probably know, there will be changes to the show's release schedule quite soon. So subscribing to the show now will ensure that you don't miss out on new episodes being released. And remember, if you're not growing your career, you're slowing your career. Thanks for listening and have a great week.
0: Thanks for listening to the IT Career Energizer podcast. To find out more about building a successful career in IT, Visit ITCareerEnergizer.com